I remember the summer of 1994, wasn't it, Becca? It's Fort Walton Beach. We were both a part of a student ministry in college where we spent the summer on Fort Walton Beach, Florida, doing discipleship and evangelism. Now, I was not very good at evangelism. I remember, though, talking to someone. People tend to be impatient, by the way, when they're on vacation and you're trying to explain to them the good news of Jesus Christ. I've had people actually say to me, okay, well, I'm on vacation. It means you're on my dime. You've got five minutes. But I remember talking to someone about Christ. And it's the only time I've ever had this reaction where they said, you know, Jesus wasn't the only one to be crucified. So I don't want to hear any more about your Jesus. He was just one among thousands. He's right. I didn't have a response to it. That wasn't one of my memorized responses for all the stuff I was trying to learn. Which isn't the best way to go about it, by the way. But in a sense, he's right. Crucifixion was a barbaric, tortuous way to die. But it was not uncommon in the Roman world. If the Roman judges decided to put to death a criminal in a way that was shameful and public and embarrassing and that would display the, the power and the might, the authority of the Roman government, they would choose crucifixion. There were times when I think a couple thousand were crucified at the same time, lining a road leading into Rome. It's not so much how Jesus died that is the issue. It's more a matter that he died and why he died. If I could turn the clock back 20 years, what I would say to this man is that it's not that he died, but not the way that he died. It's who died, why he died, and what he accomplished in his death that makes him so different from all the thousands that endured that very barbaric and tortuous way to die. So I thought I'd take just a few minutes and remind us of the who, the why, and the what about Jesus' death. What is it that makes the death of Christ so repugnant? What is it about the death of Christ that is makes us gather on a Friday to talk about it? Well, first, the who. Do you remember even before he was born what the angels said he ought to be named? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, literally the with us God. He was to be called Emmanuel, to remember that this Jesus who lived and died 
on Friday, April 3rd, maybe? year 33 AD, who knows, was God. God. So I have just a few verses to read to you to remind you that this Jesus who died was not just just another man. He wasn't just a baby who lived a good life and then died a death that he didn't deserve. Jesus. I've lost my place now. Here we go. Claimed to be God. He said in John chapter 10 that I and the Father are one. He said in John chapter 14, you remember these verses, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He goes on to say, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so Philip responds and says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What an audacious claim. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Jesus didn't only claim to be God, but he claimed the rights of God. He claimed to forgive sins. Remember in Luke chapter 7, Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus claimed to give life. In John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus claimed to be a judge, John chapter 5. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son. John chapter 1. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus claims the divine right to give spiritual blessing. Jesus worked miracles. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see, that the blind, they receive sight. The lame are walking. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf are hearing. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Who but God can do such things as these? I can't see anybody on this half of the room, by the way. Boy, I could go on and on with these things. Jesus claimed to have the authority of God. Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. John 17, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Jesus accepted prayer and praise and worship. Jesus claimed to determine people's eternal destinies. John chapter 3, for God so loved the world 
He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Who but God? Jesus possesses the same attributes as God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Colossians 1, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Hebrews 7, we learn that He has the holiness of God. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart. He is omnipotent. He has all power, right? Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, All authority, all power has been given to me. 1 Peter 3, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Who but God? Omniscience, that he knows all. He knows the mysteries, the hidden things of your heart. My friends, this one who died is not just another man. This one who died was God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Through whom all things were made. Without whom nothing that was made that has been made. The one who is before all things. And in whom all things hold together. Hebrews 1 says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Did you hear that? That Jesus is the exact representation of God. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Friends, this Jesus is more than just a man. He's God. Now, I don't understand how he can be God and man at the same time. The scriptures affirm both, that he was pre-existent. He didn't start to exist when that baby was born. He existed from the foundations of all eternity as God. But on that night that he was born, he wrapped his deity in humanity, submitted himself to a plan of humiliation. And so I turn now to Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, open there. Philippians chapter 2. This sermon is going to be a little bit different from what I usually do. I don't usually preach topical type sermons. I usually have a passage and work my way through it. But we're going to look at a number of different passages tonight. Who is this God? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then look what he says about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. So he starts, what we're going to see is a downward progression with Jesus, a humiliation with Jesus. And it starts with him as God. He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped at because he already had it. Nor did he regard it as something to be held on to so firmly that the redemption of sinners couldn't be accomplished. Rather, he was willing to empty himself, not of his deity, but of his claims to his rights as deity. Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, as to be grasped, verse 7, but he made himself nothing. This is God. And he made himself nothing. What kind of God is this? He took the form of a servant. Do you see the downward progression? It's God. Made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. He didn't just appear to be a man. He was born a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is the creator God of the universe, through whom, for whom, and by whom are all things, and in whom all things hold together. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. I can't understand, I cannot fathom the mind of God. That this one who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-glorious and all-holy and pure and righteous and just and powerful, I already said that, should humble himself, be humiliated, obedient to the plan of redemption, to the point of death, even, it says at the end of verse 8, death on a cross. Can you think of a more humiliating way to die? What would the parallel be for us in our culture? Uh, electric chair? I don't know. That the creator God of the universe should be willing to be so humiliated that he die a shameful death? I don't understand it. At least not in its entirety. If you read on, you get a peek at what's coming on Sunday. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father. But just set that aside and think about that on Sunday. I want you to ponder for a minute how the, the definition of what is righteous and pure and holy and powerful and good and right should be humiliated and die a shameful death. It is not the crucifixion that is the offense of the cross. It is who hung on that cross and why that makes it so offensive. He was just one among thousands to die 
on crucifixion. But he was Emmanuel. So there's the who. It leads us to the why. Why would he do that? Why did Jesus die? Why did he have to die? Did he have to die? Could he not have called down legions of angels to take him off the cross? Why did he? Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. As we read through this, think for a minute how strange this must sound to the world. We're talking about some very strange things in these verses. Things that a watching world is going to think are just odd. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So you have pictured here sacrifices that were being made following the pattern of what God had laid out for them in the centuries that led up to this. And they would periodically make sacrifices for, for their sin. But they had to keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back because they continued to sin. The problem wasn't what they were doing. The problem was their heart as it is for us. But this whole picture of sacrifices being made for sin was so that when Christ came and died on that cross, you would see a sacrifice being made for sin. A pure and righteous sacrifice. And a watching world has got to think this sounds odd. That Jesus entered into the holy place where God is and presented himself as a sacrifice, thus securing an eternal redemption. We will come back to that in a moment. Read on, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer if they sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so if they worked in some extent, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify us, our conscience, from dead works to serve the living God? Why did he die? He died as a sacrifice. First Peter chapter 1, verse 19. I'll back up a little bit and read from verse 17. It reads, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time in exile 
knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So if you grew up watching a pure lamb without blemish, without spot, nothing wrong with it at all, you grew up knowing that when you saw that, oh, we've got a good one this time, knowing that that one was going to be sacrificed. And then you see Christ who led the sinless life, led the life that we could not live, without blemish, without spot, perfect, being sacrificed. What picture would that draw for you? The who was Emmanuel, God with us. The why, the name Jesus, it's the same as Joshua. It means to save, deliverer. If the who was God with us, the why is for salvation. The reason he did that was to secure the salvation of sinners like you and me. Can you imagine the king himself bearing the penalty for rebels who fought against him all their lives? The Bible says that the wise so that he could bear the wrath, the anger that God has as a righteous, holy God against the sin, the rebellion people. He bore that wrath. In Christ, there is no more wrath against you. There is no more condemnation. There is no more sentence of guilty. The big word for it, Bible uses, propitiation. But in Christ, our sin is also wiped out. It's gone. Your acts of rebellion against God are no more. Your guilt before Him has been borne by Christ. So what then did the death of Christ actually accomplish? We know the why. Did it work? These verses will be familiar to you. Just listen to them. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets do bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And are justified by His grace as a gift. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That was his purpose when he hung there on that cross, bearing that tortuous, barbaric process. He endured on your behalf if by faith you believe. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, he might be good, he might be right, as well as the justifier, the one who makes good and right, of the one who has faith in Jesus. What did the death of Christ actually accomplish? Colossians 2 says that our certificate of debt is nailed to the cross. If there is a record of your guilt before God, however long or short it may be, it doesn't matter. It's been nailed to the cross in the death of Christ for all who believe. And so, yes, on Good Friday, our hearts break knowing that he endured torture because of my lack of faithfulness and your lack of faithfulness. But in his endurance, he has purchased for you redemption, salvation, forgiveness, new life. Adoption. The Bible, just five things I want to point out to you and then I'll be done. The Bible points out five specific things that the death of Christ accomplishes, purchases for us. I'll just read these, you listen. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10. The Apostle Paul says, if while we were enemies of God, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. What does the death of Christ purchase? It purchases the reconciliation of God and his enemies. And who are they? But us. Reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? I used to think that referred to his life that he lived, his sinless and perfect life. But no, I think it refers to what we'll talk about Sunday. A dead savior does nobody any good. The first thing that the death of Christ purchases for us is reconciliation with God. Ephesians chapter 2 says something very similar. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ. 
alienated, estranged from God, enemies from God, what the death of Christ purchases for you through faith is reconciliation with him. second thing the death of Christ actually accomplishes is our justification. Our justification. We read some of this already, that our God who is just, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood securing for us an eternal redemption. Our sanctification, he goes on and says in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God? Another thing that the death of Christ does is it brings to us, in some measure anyway, a purification of our own consciences. There is some bit of sanctification, even if it's only in our standing before God, that is purchased for us in the death of Christ. Galatians chapter 4 says that our adoption is purchased for us in the death of Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then finally, an eternal redemption. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And we saw in Hebrews chapter 9 that he purchased for us an eternal redemption. What he accomplished for us isn't just for the here and now. In fact, we don't even understand the fullness of it in the here and now. We will not experience the fullness of it in the here and now. I won't be until eternity. One of the most dense, not very long, but dense books I've ever read was one with probably the best title of any book on theology I've ever seen. It's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. In the death of Christ, in his sacrifice, the death that we deserve is borne by him. What is purchased for us is an eternal redemption. That is applied to us, as we read earlier, as a gift. It's grace, it's a gift. Through faith. Through faith. Let's pray.